Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to another episode of your own personal Beatles. My name is Jack Pelling, and with me, as always, is it's me, Robin Allender. Hi, Robin Allender. How are you? <laughs> yeah, good. Yes, good. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. Um, yeah, for sort of going through the sort of minus life stress of moving house, but it's all good. Mm. So I haven't had much time to get stuck into Beatley life as I usually would, although yeah. we, I have now got the um, Ross Benson, Paul McCartney book that we mentioned last week. So yeah, I'm... that arrived um, for, for me as well the same day. I'm not, I haven't quite got into that yet. <laughs> there are so many other books <laughs> in the world, you know, yeah. but I think I might dip in for some uh, comedy. You really need yeah. an extended period of free time to <laughs> yeah. like knowingly read a bad book, but yeah, yeah. hopefully there'll be some gold in there oh, that yeah, we sure can spin out over sense. the remaining episodes of the series. Yeah. We've got a fantastic episode coming up with Hazel Wilde, who uh, is from the band Lanterns on the Lake, who were this week nominated for the uh, Mercury Music Prize. It's a really lovely chat, actually. Um, lots to talk about, including getting into Magical Mystery Tour and the Frog Chorus as an entry point to the Beatles. Talk a little bit about Britpop and post-rock and other formative things. And it's a really lovely, gentle chat. Yeah, and it was really interesting to talk to her because we spoke to her kind of just before the award was announced and Michael Kiwanuka won in the end, which is another mm-hmm. fantastic album. Uh, but yeah, there was that kind of slight, slight sense of uh, anticipation about that chat, which was quite nice as well. Yeah, and she talked about the kind of the amazing experience of that having worked in a band for you know ten years, and then to get this recognition feels very kind of richly deserved. So that was kind of really nice as well. Yeah, and uh, such a great year to be nominated. It's almost uh, a prize in itself to be shortlisted amongst some of those records because. Mm. The Moses Boyd record, Kuanuka, uh, Laura Marling record, all some of the strongest uh, contenders we've had in a while. So, mm. yeah, amazing. And if you want to check out their album, uh, it's called Spook the Herd and it's available on Bella Union now, everywhere. It's fantastic. One of my albums of the summer. Yeah, it's really good. And I think, as I say in the episode, it's kind of been a very consoling album for the kind of current situation we find ourselves in. It's kind of obviously wasn't intended to soundtrack a pandemic, but it seems to have kind of They've done a good job of it. Yeah, yeah. that's great. <laughs> I love it. It's very atmospheric, very beautiful as well. Um, so that's a great chat. We'll be talking to Hazel in just a minute. But have we got any um, correspondence to go through this week? Yeah, well, um, first off, I just want to give another shout out to Gavin Libot, who wrote to me. Uh, we, he's, he's written into the show before, uh, but he's written to me because he's actually... His food puns, I remember. He was food puns, yeah. But he's, <laughs> he's written to me because he's actually covering the White Album for just arranged for solo guitar. And it's brilliant. You should check him out on YouTube. He's really, really good. Gavin Labot. And, uh, yeah, including Helter Skelter. I haven't got around to listening to that one yet. But his <laughs> arrangements of Dear Prudence and Julia are really, really good. It made me... Yeah. Yeah, I kind of picked up the guitar and learnt Dear Prudence uh, this week, which was which was fun. So, yeah, Very thanks. difficult, Dear Prudence. It is. I would say probably the hardest Beatles song to play on the guitar. Really? 
I don't I know. Well, so. the thing is with Lennon's finger picking is Julia's really hard as well because you have to kind of copy the exact pattern that Lennon's yeah. doing with his fingers, whereas McCartney is quite kind of quite strummy on Blackbird, so you can kind of play it anyway. But it doesn't sound right unless you're playing Julia or Dear Prudence exactly mm. like John played it. So that's kind yeah. of hard in that, in that sense. But um, yeah, also had another nice message from Elizabeth Mizon. Uh, just introducing me to that band Black Rabbit. Have you heard of that band? It's kind of... Mm, I don't think so. So it's, they kind of went viral a couple of years ago because they were on the New York subway covering eight days a week. Right, okay. It was absolutely brilliant. Maybe we could play a little clip of that because it's really, yeah, really sure. good. Yeah, that's worth checking out. We'll play you out with it at the end. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and also thanks to my friend Wes White who uh, uh, sent me the article about Kira Knightley who explains that the Beatles are her secret parenting weapon, that her kids are obsessed with Magical Mystery Tour and all wow. the other Beatles films. But this comes up in the episode with Hazel, doesn't it, that she was obsessed with Magical yeah. Mystery Tour from a really shockingly young age. I know. Yeah. And, quite, and I think she says in that article that she shows them all the films and it's probably not a great idea to show your, <laughs> your toddler's help. In, in I think we can sort of... Lay that to rest in the annals of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's probably not a good idea, is it? Yeah. Yes. yeah, unless they're old enough to understand the concept of time and changing cultural values. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, that's com- that's a complicated lesson to teach, isn't it? Yeah, for a toddler. <laughs> yeah, but have I ever told you my magical mystery w- weird story? Uh, which no, is that um, when I was on holiday in Cornwall in 2002, I met a, a strange mm-hmm. man on a train who said he knew Roger Taylor. Because Roger right. Taylor lives down in he Cornwall. He lives in Falmouth, yeah. Yeah, he lives in Falmouth, yeah. Um, so I thought, I think I got the impression that maybe, do a lot of people say they know Roger Taylor in Cornwall? Um, well, I was just about to do my Roger Taylor claim to fame. Go on. My dad sold him his house in, Fal- in Falmouth. Really? Which is the only reason I know why wow. he lives in Falmouth. Oh, quite good. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, but another thing he said on this mad train journey, he's one of those people who just starts monologuing at you. You know, it wasn't a conversation. But yeah, I mean, usually someone to give a pretty wide berth. Yeah, but he, yeah, he also <laughs> said that he was in Magical Mystery Tour, oh, uh, right. and I never watched Magical Mystery Tour until we started doing this podcast. So I was looking out for this man, <laughs> and I think I spotted him because he said he was wearing. He said he, he said something about he was wearing a brown jacket, and there is a guy wearing a brown jacket. In uh, the Blue Jay Way bit, where they, they kind of go into the pile into this tent, and in the tent it's actually a yeah. big kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside, like the TARDIS. And um, yeah. they go in there and watch the Blue Jay Way film, and I, th- I think that might be the madman I met on the train. Might well be. Yeah. They did shoot all of that around um, uh, Newquay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so story it's checks definitely out. filmed in Cornwall. Yeah. I and mean, it's a weird lie to tell someone, isn't it? Yeah, and there's that great bit in the Ruttles where uh, they do the the tent gag from Disney's Robin Hood. Oh, yeah. They all run, run into the tent and run off the other way. Which is uh, actually yeah. very well done and better executed than anything in the actual Magical Mystery yeah, Tour yeah, film. Yeah, yeah that's... <laughs> I thought you were going to say the tent joke from Austin Powers then, where it looks like... <laughs> Yeah. So um, if you want to get in touch with us, then share any of your sort of formative or personal Beatles stories. You can email us at jack at homespunsounds.com or go to personalbeatles.com forward slash contact. 
As always, if you want to support the show, um, we are very, very grateful if you do so, and it really does help us keep going. We've got some excellent guests coming up for the rest of this series, um, and we hope to be back with more. So if you want to ensure our survival, you can go to personalbeatles.com forward slash donate and help us cover some of the costs. And, um, yeah, we'll be incredibly grateful for that sort of support. And thank you so much to everyone who has done so. Um, You can also get in touch with us or just follow updates on our social media channels which is at Personal Beatles on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And you can message us there and we'll do our best to get back to you. For now, um, here is the fantastic Hazel Wild. So this week we're delighted to be joined by Hazel Wild from Lanterns on the Lake. Hello, Hazel. Hello, how are you doing? Very good. How are you? I'm very good, yeah. Good. It's good to see you again. Um, I think the last time I saw you was Bristol uh, Colston Hall, maybe? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it was back in yeah. maybe 2015 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, around that oh. sort of time. But, um, so was that who were you touring with? There? Was that? Oh, I was just you know, I was. I was or were you just pe- a punter? Pe- pe- just yeah, a yeah. fan, weren't you at the front <laughs> yeah, with the banner? Fan. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah indeed. Nice. But yeah, we did. But you did a tour supporting Jan, which is where we first Jan Tiersen, and that's where we first met, wasn't it? About yeah. two thousand eleven. That was like was our some... first tour, actually. That was like our introduction to touring. Was that wow. support tour? Yeah, that was great. It was a yeah. I felt bad because at the time Jan had so much equipment on stage, and yeah, it was like you had <laughs> yeah. to fit all the, the five piece band into this kind of. Like, actually, there was six of us at the time, six, and yeah. we had. For some reason, we insisted on taking all the instruments on tour. So, like, we had a harmonium, like, yeah. acoustic oh, guitars, yeah. all the electrics, all stuff like that. We didn't bother sharing things. We just um, took everything with us, which um, yeah. we did learn from that mistake. But, yeah. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> so, would you be touring now in uh, under normal circumstances? Yeah. Oh, man, we had um, a tour booked for... Uh, April we put an album out in February and then we had a tour booked for April obviously that got cancelled rescheduled it for September that got cancelled and then like yeah the European dates we didn't even get around to announce and it was just like this Mm. is just pointless just scrap it with the I was so are you you kind of planning on 20 21 dates or is it you know when when you're rescheduling the third time, it's a bit. It feels like is this going to happen at the moment? I know, but yeah. you sort of you feel a bit um, of pressure for like the promoters and stuff like that, don't you? Because mm, like yeah. they're relying on the shows for the income, yeah. and and you do want to make it happen eventually. And obviously, people have bought tickets, and you really yeah. don't want them to retain those tickets. Yeah. So um, we have got one booked in for February twenty twenty one, and like. Mm. I don't know. At the minute, it feels like that's becoming, it's getting further and further away in a way. Um, yeah. I guess yeah. we've just got to see what happens and like hope for the best. Yeah. And it's, a, it's a shame because the out, you know, this is, it feels like a real statement kind of album. And, and then obviously, you know, congratulations on the Mercury nomination. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And it feels like this would have, could have been your year as it were to kind of really <laughs> take this album out on tour and everything so sorry yeah, I'm just that's putting, you know, been... pouring salt on the wound there aren't yeah. I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's been the weirdest thing was like we spent ages on this record and then hmm. put it out and we did do like a couple of launch gigs but they were like stripped down sort of things not hmm. proper gigs 
we hadn't played live properly for ages and we were yeah. dying to just go out and play the record. Mm. And then it mm. comes out and then everything just kind of stops in the way of live music. And then so there's this disconnect then between you and the people listening to the album. You're not really sure how it's going down properly. Yeah, mm. but I found it's one of those... I mean, I love it. I think it's brilliant. It's um, We should say it's called Spook the Herd as well. It's out on Belly Union yeah. now. Um, uh, but for me, it's been one of those albums that I found really comforting this year. It's somehow, maybe it's, you know, it's kind of seemed to fit the mood and it's been kind of... You know, I know you didn't intend it to be a kind of pandemic record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it sort of has been kind of... It's kind of... I found it quite consoling, I think. Yeah, I think that um, that's happened for a lot of artists. I think that put records out this year, they didn't mean for it to fit with this context, but in this mm. context, they just kind of work. Um, mm. And that's definitely the case with ours, I think. So was it, and you were saying you hadn't played for ages, and I read somewhere that you were almost, was, was there a point where you were considering not kind of continuing, or was it kind of, it never really came to that? But I mean, it wasn't that like we didn't think we'd continue. It was just um, when you've been going for ages and ages and uh, and put out, like, this is our fourth album now. Mm. And uh, we felt quite tired and um, I personally felt a bit tired of just doing the, like, making an album and then tour and then make another album mm. kind of thing. So we just took a bit of a break, um, yeah. which it turned out to be, like, probably the healthiest thing we could have done creatively mm. definitely for myself um just to not have that pressure of working on something yeah you certainly sound very energized on the records from that but was it kind of inspired by our times for want of a better way of yeah it, it was i mean i i always say we don't sit down and like try to make a concept album or anything yeah. like that or um mm. plan what we're going to write songs about but um i, I think you can't help but let what's going on in the world seep into the music that you're writing mm. nowadays. Um, just, I can't imagine how that happens. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. yeah. So is this new bunch of songs the impetus for getting it all back together again? Had you written them and yeah. before you just made that decision? I, I mean, I was writing songs just for um, my own pleasure, really, like uh, mm. not for a Lantern's album, just to write them and... Um, and then I think Paul heard us playing one of them and was like, right, we're, we're nicking that and we're turning that into the next Lantern's album. So um, <laughs> I was a bit unsure about turning them into Lantern songs, but um, actually I think it really helped um, help with the band because like, cause I hadn't been thinking they were going to be Lantern songs. It, it made them feel a little mm. bit different and we approached them a, a little bit differently. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I mean, there's this progression you often see with bands where when you you, you know you, you start and everything you know you're, the vocals are much more buried and everything and yeah and it's kind of relying on more reverb and then and become more direct and i think that's you've you know that seems what this album is it's kind of you're kind of your voice is really clear and direct in the mix and everything not that, i mean not that i've got a problem with things being unfocused and, <laughs> yeah you know, in fact, you know, like unfocused is my middle name but yeah. um <laughs> but it definitely seems to be that progression where it seems like you've grown in confidence and like you're actually really that you know the, the lyrics seem to have more of a you're kind of addressing something rather than kind of creating a mood as it were yeah i, I think that we were probably guilty in the 
past. I was definitely guilty in the past of just saying, yeah, just a bit more reverb, mate. Just yeah. like turn me <laughs> yeah. down, definitely turn everything else up. Yeah. Um, yeah. But with this, we spent quite a lot of time actually just um, stripping a lot of stuff out of it and trying to keep to the bare bones and like making sure that every melody and every every little part in there had to serve the song. Um, mm. I think that helped the vocals shine through and um, I get the impression it helped the the meaning behind the lyrics come through a mm. bit better. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely loved it as well. I've been listening to it loads over the summer. Yeah, when did you hear about the nomination for the shortlist? It was like um, a week before it was announced, so I had to live with this thing for a week. <laughs> right. um, yeah. It was nuts. Uh, yeah, our manager sent us a text message and she was like, can I just bring you? I've got some good news. And obviously at the minute there's no good news yeah. going on, so I'm like, well, what, what could it be? It can't be about a tour because there are no tours. Yeah, Trump's um, using one of your songs. <laughs> yeah, for his campaign. <laughs> just yeah. kidding. Um, so, yeah, and I knew, like, the Mercury's, were being announced the following mm. week and I, that did pop into my mind and I quickly pushed that away and thought, nah, <laughs> that wouldn't be that. But it was, lo and behold, it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's so good because I just feel like having followed you now for like the best part of a decade, it feels like you've worked so hard and all your albums are so kind of well-crafted and you put the effort in on touring and taking a, you know... A, a big band on tour and it just feels like that's all that work's paid off you know with this which i think is really yeah. inspiring you know because even pre-covid it was it's hard to tour <laughs> yeah you know? definitely um I, I've, I've i feel like um i've talked to like quite a few indie artists or um artists that aren't huge megastars and stuff who have all said uh, this news of us being nominated for the Mercury has really motivated them and inspired them. And mm. um, I just think it's really cool for other bands and artists to see um, us getting a small amount of recognition when we've been working yeah. so hard for a long time. And you kind of think like that that's not going to happen, you know, when you've been mm. working for so long. You, um, if anything, you kind of... As you go through your career, you get talked about less and less and less. Um, <laughs> yeah, because there is this obsession with new, isn't there? Everything yeah. Is, you know, the, yeah, newness. If you've not so kind good. of shined really brightly on your debut album, then forget it kind of thing. Yeah. But I actually think um, some of the best, I mean, we're on a, doing a Beatles podcast here, some of the best yeah. bands are ones that develop over time, aren't they? Yeah, and, um, yeah, yeah. And they actually their first albums aren't always the greatest and yeah. it's, you know by the time they hit album four five six that's when they really come into their own yeah it's true mm. isn't it so, you know if you think of the, the you know the kind of trajectory of bands there was this idea of the kind of firework band kind of thing of like a big push behind the first album and then yeah. kind of dipping but like the beatles i suppose it's funny with the beatles because i suppose there was so much focus on sales as in so like try and do one or two albums a year yeah. Just keep it ticking over yeah. so they could develop in that sense. Out for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose it wasn't necessarily easier, but it was just such a different landscape, wasn't it? You know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I didn't realise till um, I was watching something not that long ago. I hadn't realised that they were putting out like two albums a year, like every six months an album or every few months yeah. a single. And um, yeah. that's just, I can't imagine that now. Yeah. Especially like the well, some of the singles that were sort of forced out that should have been on records and 
you know, you'd, there, no one had the forethought to think maybe if, uh, you know, they're writing things like Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, then we could be make a pretty good album out of this. Just, <laughs> yeah. Get it out, get it out. Yeah. <laughs> we'll start at the, at the beginning of the Beatles. Like, what are your first sort of Beatles memories growing up? I mean, I, there isn't like a first memory for me because they were always a part of being a kid. Um, mm. They were always there. And, um, like, yeah, you, you know, like, kids nowadays ha- watch that film Frozen all the time. Me and yeah. my little brother <laughs> me and my little brother watched uh, Magical Mystery Tour. That was our film that we had on all the time. Really? Which is a little bit insane oh. and quite trippy yeah. um, for kids to be watching that. That's interesting. I read a thing where you said, um, you know, when you like a song, you listen to it and like hundreds and hundreds of times over yeah, yeah. things. So was there a similar thing with Magical Mystery Tour? Um, I think it was just like being kids, that was our favourite film. So we would just yeah. put it on all the time. Um, oh, I'm surprised that it didn't completely mess us up, um, to be <laughs> honest with you. Because um, it's not exactly kind of quotable in the way like Hard Day's Night is or something. No, it's not. It's so weird, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Did you have any sort of idea of who they were or... Was it just like four for funny men and lots of bright colours singing really catchy songs? Well, there was like the Beatles as in the songs and um, this backdrop of my childhood. Um, mm. Like, for example, I think for my, I think it was my fourth birthday or Christmas, I got one of those little Fisher-Price tape players mm, yeah. with... Um, Paul McCartney, um, the frog, the frog chorus song, oh, you know that one. Right, yeah. uh, I can't believe that hasn't been mentioned yet. Yeah, <laughs> it should be. It's a classic. Yeah. Um, so they were, they were like always, and um, yeah, back in the USSR was like our favorite song to put on in the car and just like wow. bang your head to. But then I remember the moment of realizing who the Beatles were and realizing that they were this band and what they were all about, which was um, I, I had like. I think I had tonsillitis or something like that, and I was off school. I must have been about eight, and my dad had left a um, cassette, a VHS, in front of the telly, and uh, I put it on, and it and that was Hard Day's Night, and I remember mm-hmm. being like, "Oh, okay, they're like that's a band, and that's something that you can do when you grow up. You can be in a band, uh, um, right. and that was quite exciting, yeah." Yeah. Nice. Oh, that's great. Were there any particular songs in that? Because a few people have cited the the actual band scenes in Hard Day's Night. Was there any particular song that you remember? I can't remember this, this, watching it and remembering a song, but I do remember the scene where, isn't there one where one of them goes to collect the other outside their house in the car? Yeah, that's them. The, Is that uh, Hard right Day's Night? Right at the night? beginning, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was really exciting that just seeing that loads of people had that much passion for these men. <laughs> <laughs> Did you recognise them from Magical Mystery Tour? I, I don't know if I put the two together. Like, I can't really remember putting the two together, but I definitely around yeah. that time started realising who the Beatles were, yeah. So what did you take? How old were you with the watching Magical Mystery Tour obsessively? Was that quite young? I guess I must have been... Yeah, maybe about seven, six or seven, something oh like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my dad was a massive fan. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah. It's yeah. so weird what you latch on to at that age, because, like, me and my dad showed us Nuts in May, you know, the Mike Lee yeah, film. Yeah. I don't Have know that, that one. No, oh, no. Oh, it's great. It's very, very funny. 
But it's like not the kind of thing ten year olds get. Yeah. Into, but but like me and my me and my brother just we used to watch it like all the time, like know every line. From really, it. it's and so it's weird, like, isn't it? It's, you wouldn't. Yeah, but that, that magical mysteries because I only watched it sort of for the first time from starting doing this podcast and. It, it, I really like Magical Mystery Tour, but it's just, it's got such a bad reputation because, you know, it, the the hubris of, am I pronouncing hubris right? I That's very so. hubristic. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, they showed it on primetime slot on Boxing Day. So it was just such a kind of, you know, they were just asking for it to be slagged off because it's so kind of all over the place and improvised. And Yeah, and it's so crap as well, really. Yeah, it's really <laughs> um, like a student film, isn't yeah, it? Lots mm, of yeah. long shots and kind of things that don't go anywhere. I and, think yeah. probably in starting your sort of Beatles life with Magical Mystery Tour and the Frog Chorus, you've probably <laughs> chosen the two most maligned historical yeah, exactly. yeah, artefacts. So the only way right. is up from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, was, what songs did you kind of uh, respond to on Magical Mystery Tour, then? Uh, well, I have the walrus. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Um, well, Strawberry Fields, just... Mm. That's, that's not on the film, though, is it? Or is it... I can't remember. Is it not on the... Uh, what, is, it an al- is it classed as an album? Or is it an EP? Yeah, they kind yeah. of put them, all the, the two e- the EPs together yeah. with the, those tracks on it, yeah. I mean, yeah. I can't... I can I can't really remember the music from the film. I can just remember right. the bizarreness of the film. Yeah, yeah. But then, like as I've got older, I've listened back to Magical Mystery Tour and yeah, enjoyed those songs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was the so it was the they released an EP which was all the kind of I am the Warus. It was a double EP, I am the Warus and Blue Jay Way and Flying and everything. Yeah. And then when it was released as a full album. It was like let's put Strawberry Fields, Penny Lane. All you need is love. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that's a really good album. <laughs> How did your love of the Beatles then transfer into like your teens and getting into music? I mean, the Beatles was kind of like always there as a band that you listened to, even though you fell in and out of love with other trends and stuff like that. Um, they were always part of the the mixtapes and stuff that you made, weren't they? Mm. Um, mm, yeah. And then, obviously, I wanted to form a band and I think I was probably influenced by how much I saw that, like, they kind of changed the world with what they did. And whereabouts did you grow up? Was that in... So, yeah, I was born in uh, North Shields, which is where I live now. And I mm. lived in a place called Whitley Bay um, until I was about 10, I think, and then back here. So uh, Whitley Bay is like a... When I was growing up, it was kind of a really tacky... Um, seaside town that people yeah. went to on holiday, yeah, or got drunk at, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so was it quite were the Beatles quite cool then when you were growing up? Because what I find really interesting is talking to lots of different people. Is that a lot of people had a period where they had to were either rejected or had to like pretend to reject the Beatles in their teens because they were sort of uncool and then came back to them later. But for you, they always stuck around. Didn't they? Yeah, I think they. Um, they were always quite cool. And, like, when I was at school, um, well, Britpop became quite a big thing. And, um, yeah. obviously, Oasis made the Beatles cool again, didn't they? Yeah. Um, so it was kind of all right to like them as I was growing up. And then just as a teenager, I, I think jo- I was just really into John Lennon and um, 
really pathetically had made a bed piece sign um, that I stuck behind <laughs> my bed like an absolute that's loser. Um, yeah, I just that's thought he was so cool. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Depends on the Lakers. Got, got very, uh, what I've always admired about the band is it's kind of, they don't seem to exist as part of any kind of trend or movement that's happening now. And it's kind of got its kind of own sound. And, you know, you can hear kind of shoegazy post-rock kind of elements in it. So where was where did that kind of influence come from? Um, it's funny because loads of people ask us about shoegaze influences, but we were yeah. never really into shoegaze bands. Like, I think I kind of mm. missed out on that a little bit. Yeah, um, I think... Yeah. Because I, I, I was definitely kind of, yeah, getting into music around Britpop or just after Nirvana, and I just I sort of lost... I was just after that wave of the kind of slow dive and the yeah. cure and my bloody Valentine kind of stuff. Although I got into them later, it wasn't really there at the time. Like when we, um, I was in a band to begin with, with Paul and all who are in London's now. Mm. And we were looking back, we were really shoegazy, but we just didn't have that as a, a reference point at all. Um, <laughs> And I remember loads of reviews of the band were like, they just really wear the heart on the sleeve. It's very it's very <laughs> obvious that they're influenced by shoegaze. They're just churning out the same old shoegaze. And we were like, what's shoegaze? <laughs> like, we thought we'd invented this whole new genre and uh, it, uh, it definitely wasn't new. <laughs> was that kind of Paul getting into effects pedals or relying on reverb and yeah. how was it? You kind of, how did you inadvertently discover shoegaze? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's something to do with definitely the effects on the on Paul's guitar. Mm. Um, I think he. I remember that we did used to really like that first Verve album, um, "A Storm oh, in yeah. Heaven," which I, I mm. guess is quite shoegazy, isn't yeah, it? Definitely, yeah. Um, so, but so yeah, maybe that was the only shoegaze record that we really liked. Um, mm. Yeah, and then there's something about that effecty guitar and then vocals with a lot of reverb on that people. Mm. Oh yeah, that's that's shoegaze. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that probably the same kind of um, comparison with uh, the sort of post-rocky instrumentals, textural sort of explosions in the sky type? Uh, we we were definitely influenced by explosions in the sky. I mean, mm. um, I feel like that's kind of obvious. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you tour with them? Yeah, we did. Because um, we, we we were massive fans of theirs, and then. Um, 
we ended up signing to Bella Union, which is obviously their, their UK and European mm. label. And mm. then this tour came up supporting them. So obviously what we were absolutely starstruck. Yeah. Um, but they were really canny. They were really nice lads. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. They're incredible. I always thought, because I got into them sort of very early on. They were still on their sort of second record when I was at university. And I remember being a bit scared to go and see them in the Broodnail Social Club because it was, oh, wow. I don't know if you've seen, <laughs> been played, played in that venue. I'm sure you have. Yeah. Um, Little Room in Leeds. And I was like, how the hell could they recreate the sound of that record in this room? And I mean, exceeded all expectations they were absolutely i mean whenever i am asked that impossible question of best gig ever that was that's one that alternates around the top spot oh same same for me i think they were we when i was in cravenhurst the first tour i did with cravenhurst was supporting them and they were they were so nice they were lovely um yeah just incredibly generous yeah and considering i knew absolutely nothing like (laughs) <laughs> barely knew how to turn an amp on they were, they were lovely yeah i'm I'm the same jack i think my um favorite one of my favorite gigs is seeing them for the first time it's just such a intensely emotional experience isn't it yeah mm. i think that was a huge thing for me like for me like and john and john robbins the comedian like when we first started going to gigs and we saw godspeedy black emperor at the fleece which is absolutely yeah. tiny. It's smaller than the Broodnell and Godspeed would like, you know, it's almost like a full orchestra or something. Well, yeah. it felt like it, you know, two drummers and strings. And that would, I, that would just blew me away because, you know, from coming through the nineties and just seeing guitar bands to suddenly having something so orchestral and textural and, you know, dynamic, it was absolutely mind blowing. Um, you yeah. know, I, I saw them yeah. once in, um, at the Sage and Gateshead and, Halfway yeah. through one of the songs, um, the fire alarm went off. So, like, the whole of the audience had to leave. And they were all stood at the back, at the side door at the fire escape with the band. And they're, like, having a fag and, like, chatting away. And then they came back on and just started again where they'd, where they'd left off. Yeah. Really? One, two, <laughs> yeah. three. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you know that story? It's quite funny. This is a very 90s. Uh, but when Mogwai were doing a live show, on uh, BBC, like maybe the evening session, and Radio One had a policy where if if the sound level went under a certain limit, mm. they would kick in with an emergency song, so they'd assume oh, something right. had gone wrong. So they're playing a song, really quiet bit, and then they just kicked into roll with it. <laughs> by the way, which <laughs> <laughs> is great. You know, you had that Britpop era where obviously the Beatles were such a touchstone, but then you'd, you know, you start getting into more experimental music, but then the Beatles always stayed there as part of that because you hear elements of, you know, you hear the influence of them in so many different kinds yeah, of Yeah, definitely. You know? Like even um, the different versions of the Beatles separated off, didn't they? Into mm. a, yeah, and became yeah. genres of their own. Um, like definitely mm. bands like um, Cooler Shaker and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah definitely yeah. took what went down one path with them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Good old Cooler Shaker. Yeah. Uh, so, were you quite into the Brint Pop scene? Were you sort of the right age for it? Yeah. I mean, I was bang on the right age for it. Um, Oasis mm. were like my favourite band when I was, I don't know, 14 or something like that, 15 maybe. Um, and that was kind of the band that made me realise 
that it was quite easy to write songs. Like you didn't really need to know that much about an <laughs> yeah. instrument. You could just know a few chords and you'd probably mm. get away with it. What did you grow up playing? Were you a piano player or guitarist? Or? No, I only started playing piano um, a few years ago, actually. I just learned guitar. I didn't get lessons or anything like that. I just, um, I think there was an acoustic guitar in my house and I just got one of those three chord guitar song books and learned some songs from that. Mm. Any yeah. Beatles songs? Yeah. Probably, none that I can think of right <laughs> now. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird that I was learning to play the guitar, I sort of, you, you know, that, that's the thing that with the Beatles is obviously they started with such rudimentary chords and everything. I remember one of the first things I had to teach was I got this enormous chord sheet from a guitar shop that I put on my wall. But it was all like ninths and diminished sevenths. And I was like, I, no, I can't know that. I've got to start yeah, with three chords. Yeah. Don't start with a yeah, ninth yeah. chord. And I think that's uh, that's been my downfall, yeah. really. You know? I think that's what the Beatle, <laughs> the big gold Beatle books are a really good one to learn from because it's in chronological order. And so you sort of can yeah. get more complex by the time that... As they That's true. I also had a like Beatles for Buskers book, like a little kind of A5 size book, Beatles for Buskers, and I had Tomorrow Never Knows. Oh, wow. <laughs> One chord. <laughs> and it was just it was just C. Yeah, yeah just play C. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what? So you started writing your own songs then, and on the guitar. And were, were they? Do you do you have any fond memories of those early songwriting efforts? Were they very Oasis-y or were they? Um, I mean, I probably only used chords that Oasis used at the time because yeah. they were the only ones that I knew. Um, yeah. They were fairly simple and um, probably quite uh, embarrassing if I heard a copy of them now. <laughs> I did get like this um, four-track recorder and start recording stuff and I'm glad I've never come across that tape, but I do wonder <laughs> where it is. Um, but yeah, I just started writing songs like that and then was kind of desperate to join a band. One thing we're, we're quite interested in is uh, first band names. What was the name of your first one? Um, well, when I was maybe about 15, 14, 15, I tried to form a band with uh, two friends of mine and I wanted us to be called Harmonize, but with a Z. <laughs> cool. And I had um, a really good logo that I'd drawn out. Um, oh, and I was nice. really, really excited about this band, but I think it wasn't really going anywhere. I was the only one, like, pushing for things and um, the others just weren't pulling their weight. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, was it was it one of those bands you form at school, which is a band sort of in concept only? Yeah, did we actually... didn't um, ever play any songs together. Or, um, <laughs> I, in fact, I think I was the only person that played an instrument. Um, yeah. But it was a good idea, and we had a name, yeah. so that's you know, yeah. that's half the battle. Isn't I had it? A, a, yeah. technically my first band was a band like that. I think we had one sort of ten minute practice, and then the rest of it was just playing, planning which pubs in Reading we were going to play at. Uh, but we were yeah. called Addiction, mm. but the uh, the, the oh, with, wow. with a plus wow. sign at the, be at the beginning. So it was oh nice, <laughs> plus yeah. Add and then <laughs> maybe Diction or oh, oh right, yeah, yeah. Addiction. right, right, yeah, add yeah. Addiction. It was yeah, very yeah. bad. Uh, what Add I think Add Diction. So, so it's like di like because I knew plus from my singing lessons that you had the Diction was a thing to do with music. Um, oh, right, clever, right. So it had, technically it yeah, would have had yeah. three Ds, but that was the least of its problems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we went around on the, oh, I think, the on New Year's Eve trying to find a gig for um, to play the Millennium. 
and weirdly <laughs> no one took us up on the offer. I remember the um, so John and I were in a band called <laughs> Koyana Skatsi. Called what? Cool. Sorry. It's a it's a it's a film that Philip Class did the um, soundtrack to. It's got it's sort of it's a really good film. But if you're like a pretentious seventeen year old, it's it's a really terrible band name. Yeah. But it's a, <laughs> it's a great film where it's kind of lots of f- sped up footage of kind of cities and natural kind of time lapse, you know, sunsets and things. Yeah. Time lapse, yeah. Um, but with this kind of intense Philip Glass uh, soundtrack, it's really good. But I was, yeah, we were, we were obviously terrible as a band. But um, <laughs> the first gig we did um, was in the Rummer in Bristol, and John, like John, just insisted that for one song we just we wouldn't play, and he'd do one of those Brian May guitar <laughs> solos with delay. Oh wow! <laughs> and just like we were just standing there, and he was smoking as well at the time. And then we we got sort of, we were supporting another band from school, and we got we got really drunk, and we started heckling them, oh, even what? though like they'd asked us to support. Them. <laughs> oh, oh, just just really didn't know the rules. I think the the general rule is don't slag the the band off that you support, and, and yeah. also <laughs> yeah, don't is, yeah, don't slag yeah. off the sound engineer either. I've seen people yeah. start like kicking off with the sound engineer during their first song oh and God. stuff and it's like what are you doing hey, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. everything yeah. is in their hands yeah. <laughs> so what was the what was the beginnings of lanterns then was that were there a few iterations of it before yeah so me paul and all um were in a band which was another absolutely awful band name called green space one word um i quite like you? green space yeah, like a, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it sounds like a sort of county council directive. Of... It does, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was one yeah, of those things where, like, you need a band name because you've got a gig next mm. week and they need it for the poster. Um, so we settled yeah. on that one. Um, and that one, um, we did do quite a lot of stuff. Like, we did put out a mini album and um, a single and stuff like that. And then the bass player quits. We were like, right, well, we'll show him. We'll still form a new band. We'll become absolutely <laughs> massive in your face. Um, so, yeah, we started Lanterns about 2008 or something like that. Yeah. And did you yeah. send him a copy of the uh, Mercury nomination? <laughs> I, I am still friends with him. I met. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He did message and say, He's the Pete best congrats. Of, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. is the current lineup, are you all Beatles fans? Um. I think we all like the Beatles, yeah. I do remember, actually, when I first met Paul, was having the Beatles conversation, and he was like... Because he came from the kind of Nirvana kind of Mm. era, and he was like, oh, no, I don't like the Beatles. Um, (laughs) But now he admits he does love the Beatles. Um, Uh. Yeah, I think think we're all fans, and, like, there's definitely been times where we've tried to do Beatles-y things on, on recordings that we've done, like, you know, the... The big day in the life piano yeah, yeah. chord at the end mm. of a song and little little tricks like that, um, which we yeah, never pull cool. off in the same way. But yeah. you know, yeah. Because <laughs> a lot of your before this album, didn't Paul produce all of the records? Yeah, kind of recorded them himself. Yeah, you? we um, recorded all the albums ourselves, and Paul has always mixed them, and he mixed this one as mm. well. Um, but it was the first time we went into a studio. Right. Oh wow. So how was that? Was that? How how was that? How different? was it different? <laughs> um, well, it was weird to have somebody else there and like somebody else seeing mm. what the process was for us, and um, yeah, kind of letting somebody else in on that bubble, which was uh, Joss, the sound engineer. 
um it was his it mm. was his studio but it it worked really well and actually we recorded it much quicker than we would um ordinarily much quicker than we have albums in the past yeah i think recording at home there's that kind of inc- you know temptation well i can do a thousand takes mm. of this and you know yeah, yeah definitely we were always trying to in the past i think like pile more stuff on songs or um yeah. Yeah, like perfect takes, and actually, it it was better to just play it as if you're performing it. Well, and that, that, that and is it another that. kind of Beatles thing, and another thing, a factor in how they were able to work so quickly is that yeah. they just started to use Abbey Road as the place to play, you know, new songs and to play kind of. Yeah, and you can feel that, and like you can feel that energy, can't you, in, mm, in their music? Mm. Yeah, that they're kind of. Not learning them, as it were, but that a lot of the time you get the sense that it's new and it's kind of yeah. exciting. There's a lovely bit in Let It Be where Paul McCartney's taking them through the dreaded Maxwell Silver Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> Paul's doing the kind of, okay, B minor, A, A, G7 now, <laughs> like this, kind of yeah. so over the top. And John Lennon, then it cuts to John Lennon doing Dig Me a Pony and he's just playing it. Just, <laughs> not saying anything. just like wants everyone to pick it up and everything. Yeah. So, <laughs> so which are you, Hazel? <laughs> How do you uh, communicate the song? How do you like how you want it to sound to people? Um, I think we all have, and I think all bands have a bit of a, um, a weird band language that you develop between each other, don't mm. you? And um, yeah, we definitely have our own way of communicating. And um, like, for example, with the first song on this album, I remember saying like, "This bit needs to sound really lagoony, like it just make it sound like really lagoony and like lagoon," mm, and great. then. I remember people doing stuff and I'm like, nah, it's just not Laguni enough, man. We need it more, more Laguni. Yeah, so we, ha- we definitely true. have ways of um, trying to yeah. describe things. I think things John's and, yeah. famous one, George Martin always brings up, is John wanted to make it sound more orange. Whereas oh, yeah. Paul right, McCartney yeah. would be like, da, 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 and then it's, the horn does this and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. And Tomorrow Never Knows was he wanted to sound like a kind of monk shouting from a mountaintop yeah. or something. Oh, like, wow. oh, great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Give me half an hour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, bit of reverb, yeah. is that all right now? <laughs> I was listening to Tomorrow Never Knows not that long ago and it's like amazing how, even if that came on the radio now, you'd be like, mm. and it was a brand new band, you'd never heard it before, you'd be like, yeah. wow, that's it. Like it still sounds brand new, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, it stops you in your tracks, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And it's still, I mean, mm. it's still one of those ones that you find more and more in it, the, the more that you mm, listen to totally. it. Totally, I, the thing I'm always struck by is how, considering, you know, they were using tape loops, you know, as we've discussed, obviously not the first people to use tape loops, but, um, you know, considering they were using this technology, which would have been new to them, it's still incredibly melodic. Yeah. And the way the, the lines come in and out work with the kind of melodies. So it's not going into noise or anything like that. It's still incredibly rich kind of melodic world in that yeah. song. You know, yeah, yeah. Must be a lot of happy accidents. <laughs> it does sound like almost like somebody's remixed a Beatles song. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. it sounds yes. like it could yeah, be yeah. on that Love album and it could two different it, songs yeah. mashed together because it sounds so weirdly slowed down. And there, I think it is very sped, but not as much as you would think. But it's interesting what you're saying yeah. like about recording at home versus the studio because... We were talking quite a lot about Rubber Soul the other week and um, and in next week's episode we talk about some of the things that are, are just wrong in that record. And it's, it's really interesting that the Beatles, the greatest band ever, have so many slips in a lot of those unbelievable records. There are quite a lot of things that are out of tune and out of time 
and you know if they were recording that material now it would all be kind of fixed or you know nudged together mm, yes, or yeah. done in but also a, a man of genius makes no mistakes his errors are volitional they're portals of discovery you know as james joyce famously wrote <laughs> 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 yeah but no well, there, there you go that's mistakes, basically yeah. what i was trying to say <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh with um we were listening to Revolver the other day because uh, someone, um, Simon Love, a listener of the show, hello Simon, uh, was tweeting about how he couldn't believe Josie Long didn't wasn't a fan of Yellow Submarine. But mm. we, we were having a chat about who, uh, what is what is the least good song on Revolver, and I, I've I've never been a massive fan of I Want to Tell You the George Harrison one. All oh, right, on yeah. the second side, and that's one where the, definitely where they the backing vocals they're really. They're reaching. Yeah. <laughs> I've never noticed yeah. that before. And it's got that really weird wonky piano. Yeah, yeah. I've never been a fan of that. Do you, are you the sole writer in the band, Hazel? Uh, I'm, the, I'm the one that writes all the words. Um, and I tend to cut, mm. like with the most recent album, I, I wrote a good chunk of the songs, yeah. But there's a couple on there where... Um, we kind of wrote it together or want like Paul came up with a melody on guitar and we kind of fleshed it out together. So you don't have any sort of loggerheady Beatle moments? <laughs> I've, I've definitely said, let's just do whatever you want to do, Paul. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice, nice that he's called Paul. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a really lovely moment today listening to the album because um, oh, the last song on the album, A Fitting End, has got uh, the line when when time held me green, uh, which is from Dylan yeah, Thomas. Yeah, um, yeah, that poem, Fern Hill. I love that poem. Yeah, Fern Hill, and yeah, but, well, this is probably uh, well too too much information, but um, no, it was my grand, it was my grandmother's funeral oh. yesterday, and I read Fern Hill. Wow. Um, yeah, um, my grandma lived in uh, near Carmarthen all her life, basically, and. Um, so it was, I thought it'd be a nice poem. As I said, I, I don't think she would have approved of Dylan Thomas's mm. lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> I think she liked the poem. And so it was really straight. I was listening to the album again today and that suddenly just sprung out at me, you know. And uh, it's just such a, it's such an incredible poem, you know, and it's so vivid and it's so strange as well. It's beautiful, you isn't know? it? Sometimes, like, I feel emotional yeah. thinking about that poem and um, <laughs> yeah. that kind of just youth slipping away and... And yeah, yes, yeah, and that, it is that kind of. It's about that loss yeah. of innocence, isn't it? It's kind of everything's kind of painted in this beautiful landscape of almost mythological discovering the world, and and yeah, and it's about kind of growing up and yeah. yeah. Oh, as I was young and easy in the mercy of his means, time held me green and dying. Though I sang in my chains like the sea. And it's but another kind of weird link as well is that, you know, I, I, I got hold of my copy of Dylan Thomas's poems to, to you know, find it before the reading. And the first thing that leaped out at me in the intro was uh, Dylan Thomas was the favourite poet of the Beatles. And oh, <laughs> so really? It was, it was all kind of coming together. Yeah. Devouring the magic when time held me green 
I get the sense as well because there's another lovely line in this which really struck strikes a chord with me as I want a door to the 90s and yeah <laughs> so was that was that song kind of a nostalgic thing yeah it, I mean it, I suppose it's a way of escaping all the other stuff that's on the album and it's this kind of like great escape song really um getting away from mm. all the heavy stuff that's in the world now and like social media and all that kind mm. of thing and getting back to well yeah. a time when things felt more real and for me that was when I was yeah. like a teenager in the 90s and um yeah, yeah so that Dylan Thomas poem about um you know that kind of longing for that innocent time and then also a daughter in the mm. 90s kind of I suppose yeah one of the preoccupations of the album is seems to be a kind of to do with social media. Although what I like about the album is it's not kind of uh, explicitly political, for want of a better word. There's no ha-ha Mr Wilson, yeah. <laughs> which does tend to date yeah. us all. <laughs> but, you know, so was was that a concern, the kind of social media thing when you were writing the album? Uh, it's, I mean, it's such a big part of life now that um, mm. I can't really imagine it not featuring somewhere in, mm. in the songs that I'm writing about. Um yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, like I'm surprised there's not more songs about social media, really. Yeah, like it's yeah. it's part of everybody's life. Well, Robin has decided to call it quits with Twitter this week. Has, has that oh, ever really? been a consideration Quitter. for you? Uh, yeah, and I have quit it a few times. I say quit, like I've like deleted it off my phone, but not you know left it. But you're mm. a good tw- Twitterer, Robin. Is that the word? Yeah. <laughs> I just think it makes me feel so sad all the yeah. time, you know. And it's just you get into the habit of checking it every morning and it's like you wake up feeling all fresh and then 10 minutes later you're like, oh, God, yeah. I feel awful now. Sometimes. Like, you know, for the, for, for the, you know, there's a fraction of obviously, you know, you hear great music, great jokes and there are great people to follow. But I just, I'm just finding the negatives outweigh the positives, particularly in our current situation and climate. Definitely, and and Facebook's kind of the same. Like sometimes I'll, it can put you on a real downer, can't you? Because you you discover this whole dark underbelly of people's weird opinions that, and you're just like, I can't believe yeah. that people actually think like that. Or uh, yeah, yeah. It, that's the thing is the going down rabbit yeah. holes of people. You know, to see what kind of the worst people are saying. Let's see what the worst people are saying about this. You know, that was kind of a bad habit. And particularly in this time, like one of the, you know, an element of COVID that is also bad is obviously how it's, it's almost like another Brexit, isn't it? Where it's, it's another cause it's of division. It's another cult- because, part of the culture war. Yeah, definitely. And these, yeah, some of these yeah. like conspiracy theories that even massive pop stars like Ian Brown and stuff are getting involved in. And yeah. it's like, oh. Yeah. It's pretty grim, isn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah, it's kind of depressing. And, you know, someone made the point, like, where's Ian Brown been on any other, like, major political yeah, issue exactly, for the last yeah. 20, <laughs> 30 point, years? Yeah. But all of a sudden you can't wear a mask in Marks and Spencer's. It's like, right, making a stand yeah. here, you know? Did you listen to his song? 
No, I don't. I can't quite bring myself. I can't bring myself to listen to the Van Morrison. I haven't heard that one. Yeah. I listened to the Van Morrison ones at the weekend. What, what's, um, what's the Ian Brown one like? First of all, um, I mean, it's not good. Like to, to sum up. Um, <laughs> Imagine if it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean, you could forgive him for some appalling opinions if it was if it was quite catchy, but yeah. it's just really not good at all. And what's the Van stuff like? The Van Morrison yeah. one isn't... I mean, it's not really music. He's completely <laughs> abandoned any type of... Um, that sounds good. I like stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no, it is it like the Metallica and Lou Reed album? I mean, it's basically like he's reading out a badly written sort of press release. It doesn't rhyme. Mm. There's nothing. You know, it's like a sort of a, a sort of very rushed Dead Riggers sketch with a particularly adept Van Morrison impressionist. <laughs> it's it's very weird. But I was intrigued because it got three stars in the paper at the weekend. Oh, so, okay, really? right. I'll actually go and have a listen to this. But no, yeah. I mean, we'll play a clip of it. Actually, no, we won't. Don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. I think the weird, the weird thing about the van stuff is a lot of people, it brought a lot of people out of the woodwork saying, oh, well, I've never liked van anyway. It's rubbish. And it's like, no. You get part of van, <laughs> part, of, part of liking van is that there's so many stories about him being an asshole. And that he's this enigma, you know, he, where how can he make such beautiful music and be. So Such unpleasant, seemingly. But like Astral Weeks is my favourite album. Is it? You know, some of the early, the seventies records are brilliant. Just so mm. good. There was um, one of the most damning things I saw on Twitter was uh, um, someone who said I think he interviewed or something, and he walked into the do a, like a round table interview, and just someone offered him a packet of Maryland cookies, and he just ate the entire packet without <laughs> offering them to anyone. <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit like Ringo when he was offered his first joint, wasn't it? <laughs> he didn't know he had to pass it on to smoke the entire thing. <laughs> so we always—I forgot to ask you our stock question for this week. But one one question we all ask everyone who comes on the show is: Do you have a controversial Beatles opinion? I mean, if I'm totally honest with you, and I think this about most uh, bands and artists, um, there's a couple of stinkers, at least one or two stinkers on every album, isn't there? Yeah. I think <laughs> so, yeah. Broadly fair to say, yeah. 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 So, yeah, yeah maybe yeah. that. And um, any stinker in particular? We've had a lot <laughs> of people who've dragged up things like uh, Obladi, Obladar. Oh, I was going to say Obladi, uh, uh, Yellow Submarine, um Maxwell Silverhammer, not keen on that one. Um, I mean, they're mainly Paul McCartney ones, if I'm if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. He's there. I think they're the usual suspects. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That was Hazel Wild from Lanterns on the Lake. So do check out that album, Spook the Herd, on Ballet Union. And that was a really lovely chat. Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, a real shame that they didn't take the big gong. But, um, you know, it is, you know, usually people say it's an honour to be nominated. But I think in terms of the Mercury 2020, it really is uh, a huge achievement, especially because they've been plugging away. So um, it's fantastic for them. Well deserved. And yeah, yeah, definitely check out the album. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, and I, th- I think as well, is that it, like she said in the interview, that thing about, uh, you know, kind of people are obsessed with newness and it is really good for a band to be recognised on the, like their fourth or fifth album, you know, to kind of, 
you know, it's, it's, I think that was a really, it was really nice for a band like that to be recognised, I guess. Yeah, for mm. sure. And I really enjoyed going back to um, some of those records we talked about once we, uh, since we recorded that. And I, I went through to try and find the ticket stub because I've kept every ticket stub to every gig I've ever been to. Really? Um, and I have a, a huge photo album and I was looking for the Explosions in the Sky gig that um, we'd mentioned at the Broodnail Social Club and I found it and I completely forgot that it was a double bill with Explosions in the Sky and Fortet. Oh, wow. Um, and it went on for ages. It was absolutely incredible. Mm. Also, the guys who run the Broodnell Social Club said it was the best gig that they ever had at the wow. Broodnell. So yeah, I was quite Bro- pleased to I that. love the Broodnell. They've got an excellent selection of crisps there. <laughs> really? They really I do. I remember they used yeah. to sell Tato's, the Irish yes, yeah, crisps, yeah, Tato's, that are quite hard to find. Yes, yeah, so these nice Indian spiral crisps. You can get them in Sainsbury's. Very yeah, nice. it's, it's an amazing venue. They've actually yeah. they've got a second room there now, so if you oh, do cool. live in the West Yorkshire area yeah. and things get back to normal. Uh, the other thing that I realised from doing that is that I actually saw the Explosions in the Sky three times on that tour and, mm. and saw them three days after that gig at the garage. So I was like, ah. didn't remember being that obsessed with them, but obviously <laughs> I, I was. Um, the first time we, we we played with them it was Gravenhurst as mentioned, and the first gig was at the Astoria, which is sad, you know, which oh, closed, yeah. that was a brilliant venue, wasn't it? The Astoria, love the Astoria. Mm. R.I.P. Yeah. Hopefully, we won't lose too many more mm. iconic ones through yeah, this yeah. absolute shit show. Mm. Um, but thank you so much for listening to that episode, and we will be back uh, with a really exciting episode next week, where we we're talking to the author of the upcoming book Fab Fools, Jem Roberts, um, and the legendary comedian and. George Martin impersonator, uh, the actor Kevin Eldon, who has written the uh, the forward to it and is a huge Beatles slash Ruttles fan. So there's loads to talk about, um, about the Beatles and their comedy and Neil Innes and the Ruttles, uh, one of the most enjoyable ones we've done so far. It was brilliant. And also, I think that was the one where we did, there was proper kind of nerding, wasn't there? I mean, (laughs) because we haven't, you know, (laughs) most of the podcasts have been quite tangential, but that was one where there was a lot of... No, like I, I really had to do my homework for that one. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, I well, I had to read the whole book, which was delightful. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but like uh, you didn't want to just accidentally say, oh, you know, the B-side of Eleanor Rigby was, you know, you didn't want to get that wrong. Yeah, and you also don't want to do that thing that sort of Radio 2 DJs do where they talk for an hour about a book which they obviously haven't <laughs> yeah. read. More than, like when Kevin Bacon used to do his Five Lives show, <laughs> just try and wing the fact that he had read five pages of a book. Yeah. Apparently he used to be, um, when he was a film critic for the uh, Daily Mirror, just after he got sort of, I think it was one of his first jobs sacked from Blue Peter, and he just never used to go and see the films. <laughs> just used to go to the Groucho Club and make up all the reviews Fucking from hell. reading the IMDb page. Wow. Which <laughs> I think he says in one of his books, but I just thought, what, what yeah. an extraordinary thing to do. <laughs> yeah, that's a shame, isn't it? But, um, <laughs> you know, hey, I don't know how we got on to get no, it's uh, fine, Did yeah. I say Kevin Bacon or Richard Bacon? You said Kevin Bacon, so I was, oh, right. I was quite I meant confused. Richard Bacon. Yeah. It would have been quite weird if Kevin Bacon was reviewing films for the day. Do you remember when Beth Ditto... You remember Beth Ditto? Oh, she's still about. From the horrors. No, the gossip. Was it the gossip? Oh, the gossip, yeah, yes. And she was once given a column in The Guardian about, like, uh, habit... Like, crafts, crafting. Right, yeah, I do remember that. And it was just... Upholstery or something. Yeah, and she did one. She, like, did curtains. (laughs) And then then it was curtains for her. Well, she obviously ran out of ideas. yeah. Or fabric. <laughs> I like the idea. Yeah, we'll give you a column about this. Yeah. Oh, Christ. Yeah, yeah and then she go. just pretended 
like you know Richard Bacon, she just you know, sort of invented craft. Yeah. Next week, doilies. Doilies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <sighs> good stuff. Right. Well, thank you very much for listening. <laughs> <Sorry>. um, <laughs> if you enjoyed the show, the, the last two minutes uh, excluded. <laughs> no one listens then, uh, to this bit anyway, do they? It's true. Well, it goes down to about 30% of people get to this point. So, um, and completely justifiably, (laughs) if this is anything to go around, but it's late and we've had a few cans. Um, so thank you for listening. If you did enjoy the show, please uh, give us a nice five star rating. That really helps people find it and massively appreciated. And we'll be back next week with Jem Roberts and Kevin Eldon. See ya. Your Own Personal Beatles is presented by Jack Pelling and Robin Allender. The podcast artwork is done by Morgan Ritchie. It's produced by me, Jack Pelling, and is a Homespun Sounds production. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.